I'd go to remote villages where people left to go work in the U.S. And there was no men in the villages because all the men would be like in California working the fields and the women were left behind in the villages tending to the kids, right? And they would receive remittances from their husbands or, or fathers once a month or once a week or whatever, how often they got paid. You didn't want to send the money more often because the fees were too high. This is Empire. I'm Jason Yanowitz from Blockworks. And today we sat down with Bill Barheit, who is the CEO of Abra. But we barely even talked about Abra. We got into some crazy stories. He's worked at the CIA as a cryptographer. He's worked at NASA, studied computer science at Stanford. He studied finance at NYU. He was on the quant desk at Goldman Sachs. He worked at Netscape with Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz before their IPO, and then ran a $50 million P&L helping international companies come online in the mid 90s. So we ended up talking about those, those experiences. We ended up talking about the 100 year debt cycle that's going on, why that matters for you. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Bill. Uh, he's a fascinating guy. If you haven't yet subscribed to the BlockWorks newsletter, we write it every single day. Tyler Neville on our team does an amazing job of kind of talking about the intersection of crypto and macro markets. That's it, our website, blockworks.co forward slash newsletter. And if you haven't subscribed yet to the podcast, I hope you will uh, enjoy the episode enough to do so. It's on Apple, it's on Spotify, as I'm sure you're listening to it there, or uh, subscribe on YouTube where we have the full video. So uh, let's jump into the episode. That's enough for that. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Bill Barheit, the CEO of Abra. This episode is brought to you by Luca Tax and Exodus. Stay tuned for more info. Bill, it is so nice to have you here. Uh, I thought we could start um, by just diving into actually some non-crypto stuff uh, to kick this off. Can you share a little bit with the audience about your you know, time at the CIA? I think you were at 18, 19, maybe 25, 24, somewhere, somewhere in your earlier life. What, what was that period of your life like? And how did that come to be? It was a fun time. I mean, well, I mean, work was a fun time. My father had just passed away, uh, very young, 48. Mm -hmm. And so I had planned to start even younger and went home after he died and then went back to D.C. again uh, a short time later. And uh, but working for the CIA was amazing. Um, it really taught me a lot because it was my actually my first kind of real job besides, you know, uh, delivering newspapers, selling newspaper subscriptions, which I think I had done, fixing bowling alley machines, which I think I had done. <laughs> so, but this was my first kind of real job, uh, air quotes. And, and so, um, yeah, I mean, it taught me a lot. I mean, it taught me what I didn't want to do. Uh, but it also, I, I mean, I went to the White House like three times. Uh, so two, two presidents, Benazir Bhutto from, uh, and Prime Minister Hawk. So, you know, dating myself, sorry, but <laughs> it's the truth. Uh, and, and so that was fun. But, um, you know, I let's see. So this was there still there was still a Soviet Union when I started working for the CIA. So, so take us back. So this is late eight. Is this late 80s, mid 80s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, there was still a Soviet Union. Um, my first two jobs were one working in encryption and secure messaging systems. But encryption was a you know, it, it, it didn't mean anything compared to what it means now. I mean, it was. Um, you know, there was no concept of like, you know, key management and it was, yeah, I mean, it was secure messaging between facilities, for example, you know, 30 plus years ago. Uh, and so the fact that people didn't know that there was messaging between the facilities was probably the, the first level of security. <laughs> so, uh, and, and so I did that for a while and then I, I moved over to, um, they had a group that was doing uh, all kinds of weapons research, which was actually interesting as well. Uh, so I did both. I got a lot of exposure to, you know, different, um, yeah, just different things going on. And, and you know, I, I, um, I really relished the time that I worked for the government first for the CIA and then for, uh, for, for, for NASA. Um, it really taught me a lot. First, it taught me I didn't want to work for the government anymore. Which you know, knowing what you don't want to do when when there's a relatively short list at the time is is, is interesting. <laughs> so that you know, but I, I still have friends from 30 years ago, literally 30 years ago that I talk to every every week and month, and and so so that's special, um, and they're good people, and it's it's not for everyone, 
Um, you know, it's you're, you're never going to make a lot of money, um, especially, you know, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area and uh, the peninsula, and it's incredibly expensive. I was working here for NASA and, um, you know, at NASA Ames facility near Stanford, where I live now and uh, even 30 years later. And, and uh, it's just incredible how expensive it is to live here as a government employee. I don't know how a lot of them do it, but but the, you can get a lot of toys, right? I had uh, my own supercomputers basically dedicated to me. You know, I had these big cray machines, and um, so that was cool and big budgets. But um, you know, there's a lot of downside as well. So, um, so, so I mean, I'm not going to let you talk about uh, the CIA and and mention Russia in the same sentence without asking you for a for a story. I mean, I uh, I don't know. I'm not a huge history buff. I know a little bit, uh, but. I mean, wasn't that when we had just put in place the embassy in Moscow and, oh, yeah. and Carter I wanted to do yep. the joint deal? Like, was, were you involved in that yep. at all? Were you working so, on Because wasn't there some sort of encryption? Like, Yeah, yeah. So our of... messaging system was supposed to be used in the new embassy. So so basically, the, the, the backstory, for people that aren't aware, is I guess there was a deal. I think it was under Carter or maybe before him. I'm not sure if it was Ford or Carter. But basically, we built a new embassy in Moscow. And the deal was uh, they would give us the land. It would become, quote unquote, American soil, American soil, as an embassy normally does. But we had and, and but we had to use local workers to do the work. Now, that should be a big ding, 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 ding right there. Uh, you know, in in the ninth, early late 70s, early 80s. Anyway, so we get this embassy built. We start basically, you know, looking over the work and everything they had done. And we discover, lo and behold, in the concrete in the building, there are bugs every few inches. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's insane the number of bugs that they basically put in this building to the extent where it was almost a stupidity test. It was like, okay, there's zero chance these people are ever going to move in, right? But if they do, you know, we're good to go. And, and so this was a huge wake-up call because it really honestly apparently had never occurred to anyone that this was going to happen. Obviously, they wouldn't have agreed to let them do the work, at least publicly, uh, or maybe they felt or, – or maybe there was somebody in the administration that did the deal that said, okay, we know we're never going to move in. It looks good that we agreed to do this, you know, political reasons, whatever. But in any case – Yes, it changed the CIA significantly at the time because secure messaging systems became a priority, right? Well, why don't we secure the messages so that, the, so that if they are listening, right, like go back to World War II Enigma days, so that if they are listening, it doesn't really matter that they're listening. And, and you know, that became an interesting concept again, whereas that wasn't really the main focus of um, the messaging systems. A lot of the, a lot of the focus was you know, make sure nobody's listening. Um, you know, so for example, my, my building, uh, basically the, the hallways have these waveguides, which absorb electric, electromagnetic radiation because they're never straight and the halls are always crooked. And, and so that prevents people from listening in the first place, right? It's clever, but it's not realistic. So, so the mantra started to change, like, which is assume everybody's listening and then deal with your security as opposed to keep everybody from listening, which I think was a lot of the original thought from the, the 70, 60s, 70s, and maybe early 80s. So 60s, 70s, early 80s, the, the mindset is try to make it so people can't listen. Going into the 80s, it becomes, okay, we know people are listening. How do we make it so that they can't decipher what the actual yeah, information yeah, is? Yeah, I think there was some of that for sure. And, and, and that kind of was the beginning of my time and, you know, public key cryptography and, and, and encryption was not a, a mainstay of anything. It, it barely existed at the time. So and, and remember, the computing power that we had available to us was on the desktop was a fraction of a, a tiny fraction of what we have now, you know, dealing with 16 bit processors, 32 bit processors. So so it was a very different time uh, in terms of what you could do. And, you know, what we can do on an iPhone is is, you know, a million times more than what you could do on a desktop. So um again very very different time and i want to get into your time at goldman and, and move forward a little bit but just yeah. one quick note how did you know how to do this i mean how old were you when you were working at the cia and how were you were you a computer genius and a hacker as a kid or what what was your what were your I early mean, childhood genius is, it's all relative right because what you needed to know coming in 
to do things then compared to what you need to know now, it's very different. I mean, um, also I had to, I mean, there's a lot of things I didn't know that I had to learn. I didn't know, uh, IBM 360, 370 programming, which is a mainframe by the way. Uh, and, and I had to learn that I had to learn a little bit of COBOL. I had to learn Fortran. I had learned C, I had learned some C plus plus, but that, you know, I, I, I knew C really well. Uh, I knew coding. I knew a lot of techniques, which I learned uh, early in college and later in high school. There was no Java. <laughs> it was in the 80s. So, uh, and, and so you actually had to learn, in some cases, you had to know assembly language, which, which was very difficult. I mean, unbelievably difficult. And there were tools, but still, um, the patience required, the amount of time it would take to do something. But that was all about performance. If you needed something that was just insanely fast, uh, and performant at the machine level and ultra secure, you, you, you would often use machine language. And so today you would do it in C, uh, but, um, you know, anyway, so, I mean, I was good, but today when I look at the kids coming out, they're better. Um, and I was very lucky that, uh, that I was interested in what I was interested in at the time, uh, because I could be, you know, a, a bigger fish in a, in a smaller pond because there were fewer people who could do what I could do. Whereas today, there's millions of people who can do what I could do, uh, and, and at least then, and many of them can do it better. Uh, so I've had to evolve <laughs> over the last few years. Why did you leave the CIA? Um, honestly, it was because I wanted to go to California, and I was interested in going to Stanford, and uh, NASA had offered me uh, a transfer out here to do that. And, uh, it was nicer weather, nicer weather. <laughs> the first, the first winter and summer at the CIA. Now I'm from New York city. And for some reason, it just seemed it was tougher in that Langley area. Like the winter was tougher. The summer was more humid. The idea of going to California and, and, uh, you know, being in a nicer climate, going to Stanford, potentially working for NASA was all, it was all a very good enticement to, to get out of Dodge. And, um, while I love my time there, I have a lot of friends even still, uh, it was a good move for me personally and kind of led me to where I am now over a more circuitous route, but for sure led me to where I am now. So you go, you get out to the West Coast, sunny weather, you're going to the beach, you're working at NASA. Yeah, you it was start amazing. At, you start at Stanford studying, I'm assuming, some sort of computer science at Stanford? Yeah, so um, I wasn't in a degree program yet because I was trying to figure it out. So they, they let you take classes when you're at NASA. They had this program or had this program. I don't, I, I don't know if they still have it. Uh, I did that, took a bunch of classes, some computer science. Uh, I was also taking classes uh, related to um, uh, the, the, the master's uh, and PhD requirements. There's some base level requirements, and it was really brutal. I mean, <laughs> this is a, uh, an amazing program. It was a tough, it was like really a, a weeding function for the best of the best. And these are people who were all like, wherever they came from, uh, they were the best at computer science. They, you know, top of the class. And it was just an amazing, like, like if you know anything about algorithms, like I had Don Knuth's class in concrete mathematics. I may have the book down here. I don't, I don't know if I have it. And, and it's like a six day take home test and no one in the class finishes the test. And basically it teaches you how to do proofs, right? Which is, you know, kind of, like I said, a weeding function for the PhD program. And I was miserable. Uh, I mean, I could do most of the work, but like most people in the class, I couldn't, I couldn't finish it. You know, as I was doing this, I was, I was also realizing that maybe a PhD, uh, in computer science was not for me. Um, as, as you know, I, I was pretty convinced I could do the work. I was pretty convinced I could add value. I had some things I was interested in, but the time commitment and, 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 um, you know, a lot of other things I, I, I was committed at the time, but then, you know, I started to, uh, look around what was going on in the world and I became really interested in other things. And then at some point, Goldman Sachs came calling, uh, so, you know, again, not with no intent. I, I wasn't even looking for a job on Wall Street. And uh, I'll tell you how it happened. So, so I was probably the youngest person in my research group at NASA by 15 years. And this is early 90s? This would be, yeah, this would be early 90s okay. now. And, and it was really, I mean, the NASA at the time was a lot of lifers, right? Because it was a great life great work. There was not a lot of places you could do your research. And, um, I wasn't a PhD at, yet. So, you know, I was more of a grunt, which was fine. Uh, you know, but I, I knew the supercomputing facilities from my CIA days. So I could do a lot of work that would add value to the PhDs and they loved that. And, and so, you know, uh, when, when, uh, we would have these recruiting events, then we didn't really recruit many people cause it was super hard to get in there. 
but nobody wanted to go because you know they all looked down on all the kids. So, so they would say, "Send the kid." So whenever we had recruiting events at Stanford or Berkeley or uh, every once in a while on a plane go, or go down to UCSD, you know, not only did they not recruit, they only recruited if it was like literally top ten or whatever. Very arrogant. Anyway. So I would uh, be sent as the kind of um, token young person recruiter to these events. And everybody would be interested, you know, if they were in computer science or engineering, especially like, you know, aviation, you know, aviation or even automotive or mechanical engineering. A lot of computer science majors, they would all flock when they would see the sign for NASA. Uh, you know, it was fun to talk to them, but I knew in the back of my mind that they had you know, very little chance of getting in the door um, in those days because it was the budgets were so small, it was so hard to get in. Anyway, so in one of these events, I'm, I'm talking to people from other companies uh, and, and you get to see the same people over and over at a lot of these events because some of them are dedicated recruiters. Like the larger companies, they're not sending people like me that are actually doing the work in the trenches. They're sending people from HR and every once in a while, they'll send somebody in, in the front lines, but generally it's mostly HR and people dedicated to recruiting. So I'm at an event one time at Stanford and, and there's very few students showing up. I don't know, maybe because they, they scheduled it for breakfast at like 7 a.m. And, and so it's basically all us companies sitting around. And, and, and so I got to talking about what I was doing for NASA and, and my work. And, you know, I was telling this to people who are at Goldman Sachs. And I'm like, well, this is going to be boring to them. But I'll tell them anyway. And so I, one of the recruiters came back to me uh, sometime later and said, you know, what you were doing, what you were talking about is like exactly the way a lot of the quantitative analysis works, you know, for us. And she started talking a lot about the work. And I honestly didn't understand 60% of what she was talking about because I had no finance background at the time whatsoever. I, I didn't know the difference between fixed income and equities. I, I, I didn't know anything about anything, basically. And I didn't know that I didn't know anything about anything. I just knew I didn't understand her. <laughs> but I was from New York City. And so she said, hey, if you're ever in New York and you want to come talk to uh, people and, and, and find out more about, you know, what it would mean to work in this type of environment, you should come by. I think you'd find it really interesting. I was like, okay, well, why not? She seemed very nice. And so, you know, I, I knew Goldman Sachs, people made a lot of money. I knew it was banking, but that was all I knew. So I was in New York a few weeks later and I actually called them and, and I ended up going over there and she introduced me to like, like five or six different people. And one of them ended up calling me back and said, you know, we love your background and, and we know you don't know a lot about our world, but you would learn quickly and we would love to teach you and we think you could do really well here. Now, getting recruited by the CIA when you have to go through background check and security check and psyche eval takes months, okay? Um, but from an intensity perspective, this was more intense of a process over those five days than what I went through at, at the CIA to get in the door. It's still by far the most intense recruiting process I've ever seen. At the end of the process, they, I, I was starting to get a feel for why they wanted me and they, they offered me a job and, and I took a huge chance because I, I was doing enough homework to, and remember I couldn't just go online and search. <laughs> you have to go to a library, you have to go buy books, you have to ask other people. Uh, and, and so I was getting to the point where I could more or less get a clue as to what I was going to do, but I was still taking a big chance because, yeah, the money was going to be phenomenal compared to what I was making for the government, uh, but I really didn't know if I was going to like or even understand this work. And I was moving back to New York City, by the way, and I had especially moved to Stanford to work to go to Stanford and be in, in have fun in the sun. So, so now I'm back in New York City winters and brutal summers again, and have to wear a suit every day. And, and uh, I'd never done that before. I, I didn't even own a suit at the time. I had to go, I, I had to borrow a suit for, for these meetings um, and it didn't fit. So luckily it was too big and not too small. <laughs> um, yeah. All right, little break from the show to talk about our favorite topic, taxes. It's tax season, right? IRS just pushed back the deadline. It's time to do your taxes. Thankfully, we got Luca coming in as a partner of Empire to help us all do our taxes. Luca just raised $75 million over the course of the last year. They raised from folks like S&P, George Soros. They've been around for years, super legit. A bunch of big names in the space use them. I've been using them for one reason, which is uh, I'm cheap and uh, Luca helps you do your taxes for 20 bucks, right? They save you time, they save you money, they got all the plugins, they make it super easy for you to do your taxes. So if you've been putting off taxes, you're dreading crypto taxes, let Luca 
make it easy for you. Head on over to tax.luca.tech forward slash empire. Also, uh, just click that link in the uh, description. It'll take you right there. All right, let me know what you think. All right, let's talk about buying Bitcoin. Uh, if you're anything like me, you've used a dozen different platforms to buy your crypto over the past few years. I've used every single platform out there. They're all pretty different, except they've got one thing in common, which is they've got these stupid high fees, right? I used to have this recurring buy setup where it was $500 and I'd get hit with a $7 fee every single time, right? So I am super excited to announce that Exodus is now sponsoring the podcast. You might not have heard of Exodus, but they've been around since 2015. Their founders are real OGs. Big fan of Exodus for two reasons. One, you can buy $500 worth of Bitcoin instead of a $7 fee, it's a $1 fee. Pretty big difference. The other thing is they have over 130 different assets on the platform. So if Bitcoin's not your thing, Exodus has your back. Head over to exodus.com forward slash empire. You can also find the URL in the description. And uh, yeah, let me know what you think. So you, you go over to Goldman, you're working at on, I think I, I read somewhere on the fixed income desk. How That's big, right. if you don't mind me asking, how big of an of a pay bump is it going from somewhere like NASA to a quant at Goldman? Oh God, um, I think with my bonus the first year, it was somewhere between four and five X my salary. Yeah, I wanna say. So that must've, that must've felt nice. I mean, in today's dollars, it's not huge, but in, in even, the, even the Goldman salary was not huge in today's dollars. But, but for me at the time, it was all the money in the world. I was like, I, I mean, I grew up, my family's relatively poor. So, uh, you know, from the Bronx and then, and then spread out from there. And, and I was just, I just couldn't believe it. I said, this is fucking insane that people get paid this much money for doing what I do. And, you know, obviously I came to understand how they make money and, and, and how the system works and, and why bankers get paid what they paid and how the little circle, how the money moves in a circle and everybody. So, wait, takes so, let, so let's talk about, let's talk about that. Cause that's you fascinating. Know, I, so you're, you're I, from the- I liken it to the, you know, you ever sit at the buffet in Hong Kong or Japan when the tray comes around and it just never stops coming around, but there seems to be more stuff on the tray as it keeps moving around. Well, that's banking, right? The, the money just keeps moving in a circle. There seems to be more of it as it's moving in a circle. And your job is to reach in and grab some off the tray while it's moving around, knowing that it's going to keep coming around, or at least that's the perception. It's like I said, it's fucking insane. So, and, and so, so what is that? Like, where, where is that money coming from? Like what you're this wide eyed kind of kid, you're making sure. a stupid amount of money. You sit yeah. in your first, your first year, I think you're on the, Explaining Goldman's business was, in hindsight, yeah, explaining Goldman's business in hindsight was much easier in those days because it was a much smaller company. I joined when the entire bank was like a couple thousand people. Um, and, and so, like, I think it was 2,000, the entire company. And it's massive today, right? I mean, the 85 Broad Street headquarters was the primary facility for everyone. And it was a relatively small building compared to their current headquarters, which is massive by the Amex building on Vesey. And so, on Water Street. So, so um, fixed income was very simple. You, you're trading uh, fixed income instruments, uh, bonds, distressed debt, corporate debt, uh, junk bonds, uh, LBO debt uh, from the 80s. Remember the barbarians at the gate? All that stuff was tradable and Goldman traded it. My area was distressed debt, um, uh, international distressed debt, uh, developing, which was developing market debt in a lot of cases, uh, and also distressed corporate debt because it was grouped together. It's very hard to price some of the distressed corporate debt, uh, and so I became like pretty good at, at building models for a lot of that stuff. And I did a lot of programming as well because you built your own stuff in those days. Everybody had a Sun workstation on their desk. That was the most powerful computer you could buy at the time, and all the models were built in C and C++ on a Sun workstation for yourself, and then everything was networked together. The network security was shit, um, uh, by the way. That, we had a lot of fun with that. Um, but you had like dedicated uh, mainframes that did a lot of back office processing. So I learned fixed income. So to your question, you know, fixed income, you're basically trading things based upon interest rate movements for the most part, right? So you basically learn how to predict interest rates, how to build models that predict what happens if interest rates move in a certain direction. So um, let's get let's get really nitty gritty with that for a second. So you said sure. you traded typically like fixed income, distressed fixed income of corporate. I was building models for they. You're not going to give Bill anything to trade in in, in those days. I didn't know what I was doing. No, <laughs> so, now I do now. But so I like what's bet. a what's a specific like what's a distressed company or a country that might have traded yeah, back good then? Question. What would the so, interest rate have been? How would you known to how would you build that model? Yeah. So. Um, uh, Mexican bank debt, right? Or 
uh, you had a lot of what was called Brady bonds, which was converted uh, government debt uh, into these new bonds that were underwritten by the U.S. government in exchange for companies, uh, countries willing to make certain structural reforms. Uh, the ones that were the most liquid and the largest pools of money, uh, I, I, it's, it's yeah, Russia, Mexico were the, were the biggest ones, uh, but there were other countries as well. Um, and then on the distressed corporate side, it was all the a lot of the LBO debt. So uh, Macy's Federated. Um, when Macy's was, when the LBO happened there, uh, and there were others as well, like a lot of it was, if you just go back and look at who the LBOs were, uh, when the corporate raiders would basically, you know, just extract all this cash from the companies, uh, you know, we, we traded a lot of that, that, that debt, uh, and, and, and we grouped them together because, uh, pricing distressed government debt bonds and pricing distressed corporate debt was actually very similar because you couldn't use interest rates 100%. You couldn't necessarily use discounted cash flows. You had to know a little bit more about what was going on behind the scenes. So it had a component of like an equity analysis to it. You still had to understand the basics of fin fixed income, you know, duration analysis, convexity analysis, and all those complex things that you would do if you were doing a, um, you know, bond a math, but, but at, a, at a more complex level even than, um, you know, than just the normal fixed income instruments, which was mostly based upon interest rates. Hmm. Can you, so how did the, your time at Goldman shape your current thoughts on big banks, Western financial markets? Oh, yeah, huge. I mean, I got an MBA in finance on their dime sitting on the trading desk over a few years, right? I mean, I left that, I left them understanding pretty much how banks work, um, how, how debt markets work. Um, how governments so work. The, so what's something that you figured out that you, there's just no way to know it by reading things on Google. And like, what's something well, that know, our, our right. audience can take away from your time? You can learn a lot from Google if you're motivated. I mean, you know, I had no choice but to learn it the way I learned it at the time. So I guess, I mean, a lot of people, that's not true. A lot of people that were coming in had MBAs. I didn't have the MBA. So when I was going through their training, a lot of people that were going to the, the training with me had a huge advantage because I was watching them do these problems and it was clear they had done the problems before at business school. Um, you know, like how to do convexity analysis on a bond is, you know, uh, it's not trivial, right? It's, it's the first derivative of duration, if I recall. So it's the it's, it's basically the change in duration over time. And, and so, so it's a, it's a complex calculation. And so they were doing it boom like that. And I'm going, how are these people doing this? And, and so I got it eventually, right? But reasonably smart guy. But I'm like, they, they were doing it like within a few minutes of hearing the explanation and it doesn't work that way. And so obviously they had learned it in business school. And I guess if you basically take, you know, fixed income mathematics, which is a class toward at Harvard Business School, um, you learn exactly what they're teaching you in the first week at Goldman. Uh, in, in, in my class anyway, right? Uh, you know, investment bankers are learning something very different. So, so um so yeah, so you're, you're learning that on their dime, which in hindsight is fantastic because, you know, and then um, tremendous research reports about, and, and that you're, you know, you're expected to process about, you know, what governments are going to do in these circumstances. And in that regard, it's like the CIA, but from an economics perspective, right? Because at CIA, we had all kinds of research reports as well that I had access to. And, you know, a lot of it was confidential and classified that the public would never see, but, but it was pretty interesting. Right. And now this is public, but the most of the research that Goldman is doing is public, either for private clients or for public consumption, if you can find out how to get access, because it's all on paper. And, and at this point, so there's no Internet. And, and, and so, you know, again, you get this MBA in finance because you got all this stuff thrown at you. You learn how how governments work. You learn how bond markets work. You know how they're, they're related. So when Ray Dalio talks about being at the end of a hundred year debt cycle today, I understand what he's talking about. I understand why he's right. Um, and when he says he's worried that the same thing is happening now that didn't end well in the 20s and 30s, he's right. I get it. Um, I, do, I wouldn't have understood that if I didn't do what I did over the last couple of decades. So it also taught me about regulation and how, uh, you know, inadvertently corrupt, uh, you know, bank regulation is. And, um, you know, I didn't have as much exposure to retail yet, but I was starting to get the picture. So the, I want to double click on two things there. First is the yeah, sure. 100 year debt cycle. And the second is the regulation. Um, let's talk about the 100 year debt cycle. What, what do you mean by this? So, and, and Ray Dalio is the best uh, articulator of this that I've ever heard. 
if you look at the history of bond markets, right, uh, this is the third time now that we're in this kind of repeated uh, debt cycle where interest rates are going negative, uh, governments have, are run amok, are printing money without end. And the last time this happened, when we were kind of in the late stages of this debt cycle, you know, it didn't end well, right? I mean, it basically ended in World War II. So, so and then you can go back, you know, before that and, and look at earlier debt cycles and see what happened there in, in the history and even in the 1800s. And it, it looks like this is happening again. Now, um, this is worrisome. We didn't have Bitcoin at the time. And, you know, I don't know if Bitcoin can evolve fast enough or how governments will deal with that. But um, I'm very worried that unless something structural changes, we basically end up with no way out but to write off all this debt. And I don't know where that leads. But like I said, it didn't end well the last time around. Hmm. In terms of the... If you had to think about, because you're you spent some time in fixed income, right? Like we just talked about. If you had to think about the implications of this, what happens when you know our yields on fixed income right now are have fallen over ninety percent, right, from the eighties? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, you've got you've got trillions of dollars starting to get locked up in negative yielding debt. What does that actually mean? If I'm you know thirty years old and listening to this podcast, and you know I don't work in finance and I don't run a big bank, how do, how does that impact me? Well, first of all, the 60-40 allocation that um, you are taught is the most reasonable kind of conservative approach to a diversified portfolio is basically dead. Now, I think it's moving to 80-20 in a lot of institutional portfolios, but that makes no sense. Uh, it's basically like, you know, you know, instead of having a, you have a dead patient, but it's like weekend at Bernie's. Right. Instead of burying the patient, you're going to you're going to bring the patient with you uh, for your weekend in, in, in the Hamptons in Long Island. So you'll go watch Weekend at Bernie's <laughs> and you'll know what I'm talking about. Right. So so when the patient is dead, the patient's dead. And and I don't know, as an investor, you know, why are you messing with bond markets? There's no point. I mean, stocks have become effectively a store of value that should tell you all you need to know. Right. Um, and so we are desperate for yield. And if you look at what's going on, you, know, you have all these services now that are basically trying to provide that yield to retail consumers, especially high net worth investors. But, but, but you know, Cadre, Yield Street, Fundrise, all basically offering alternative 8 to 12 percent uh, uh, investment opportunities that, um, you know, are, are, are debt based because they're, they're higher risk than, than government bonds, which are always considered the gold standard, which is bullshit, by the way. Um, the idea that you print more money to pay your debts, you know, I mean, anyway, whatever. So, so my opinion is 60, 40 is dead. 80, 20 should be dead, but it's not. And what is working to some degree are these alternative debt instruments and they're not accessible to retail. They're only accessible to high net worth investors. Go try to register for one. And if you, you don't qualify, you're shut out. Um, and, that's, and that's another ridiculous rule, by the way. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. Um, you can go to the casino with a million dollars, but you can't invest in a alternative investment that pays a 10% yield on real estate debt. It's fucking insane. Um, and, and so um, I don't know how we, it's, it's, people haven't figured it out yet. You know, I think, I think small retail investors intuitively know that, you know, if I'm getting a stimulus check, the best place for it right now, if I, if I don't have to spend it, is stocks, right? Or Bitcoin, which, you know, I, I would rather be long Bitcoin than most stocks. But, but by and large, like, sorry for the long diatribe, but the 60-40 is dead. And, and, and so, you know, it's going to take a while for the markets to catch up. But that just means that there's going to be more upside to stocks when you see the money flows change. Hmm. Let's, uh, let's start talking about crypto, actually, because this is a, a nice segue you want one one thing in your career that we didn't touch on is your time at Netscape, right? Working with, you know, Mark Andreessen and, and some crypto folks who, you know, have also been on the show, like Mike Belshi. You ran this big, you know, kind of I think it was $50 million PL, big team helping businesses like Axel Springer and Swedish Post and Union Bank come online for the first time. 
how do you see that experience kind of impacting what you're doing now and are companies starting to come quote unquote online again into crypto wow i mean i haven't heard those names in a long time so uh, yeah i mean the first idea for the internet came to, came to me back in my nasa days because we were running um at the, the group that i was at at nasa in addition to being a research center it was also the West Coast peering point for the internet and act as, acted as a major global hub for the internet. And so there was this group called NASA Science Internet. And because it wasn't a commercial internet, it was the hub for uh, basically all of the research um, uh, that was done via this connected network that was called the inter internet at the time. And I wanted to be part of this. I knew I wanted to be part of it as soon as it was becoming commercialized. And so that's when I started looking hard to make the jump to um, to, you know, anything to do with the internet. And I had some friends that, uh, at the time from my, from my days out, out here in California that had already made the jump to, uh, Netscape. It was super early. I mean, it's pre IPO and they were working on the browser, or I think there was a server product being built at the time and, uh, they were scaling up very quickly. That's all I knew. Anyway. So as soon as I had the opportunity to join, even though I was, I, I mean, I was on a fast track at Goldman, it was great opportunity and, a lot of money. I was like, I got to get out of here. I got, I got to go do this internet thing. I'm, I'm, so you I'm left all... from gold. You went straight from Goldman, fixed income, quant side of things, over to Netscape. Yeah, yeah. And how early and were you at Netscape? Like employee number. It was one right one around the one. time. Yeah, it was right before the IPO, as I recall, like pretty vividly. It was a crazy time. We were building the international team. The, the two things that I was really interested in was getting publishers online um, and getting banks online. And that became a big part of my work, uh, particularly the banks. Um, and, and, and I also spent a lot of time figuring out the requirements from a key management perspective for companies that were using SSL. Um, remember, in the early days of Netscape, there was no SSL. And then we added SSL on top of the browser in a later release. All of a sudden, we had this key management issue where you know, uh, companies were going to be creating web servers with private keys, and they were going to need to manage all this stuff. And how are they going to do this? And uh, especially big, big banks and governments and big publishers. Uh, and so that was interesting to me. Um, and and I, I really built one of the first what we call PKI, uh, public key, private key infrastructure businesses uh, for, for Netscape and, and, and mostly in Europe. Uh, I was going back and forth a lot between San Francisco and, and Europe at the time. We also sold the browser at the time uh, commercially. So this was before Internet Explorer was embedded in the Windows desktop and became free. And so a lot of the ISPs, uh, the companies that you would use to connect to your internet, um, would distribute CDs with the Netscape browser on it. And so we would do deals with those ISPs to embed the browser. So I would work on that with the team. And we had a team in, already now in Scandinavia. We had a team in Central Europe. And we would go in and help them do those deals to put the browser on the CDs, which they would pay insane amounts of money for. So, so the bottom line is to make this not boring. I, I had a, I basically had an MBA in finance at Goldman and I got an MBA in business via trial by fire at Netscape because I didn't know what a PL was. I never managed a PL. I didn't really manage people before, to be honest. We had teams of people on site at Deutsche Telekom and Swedish Post, which is like their equivalent, um, and building other online services. We had people at Deutsche Bank and, in Switzerland and Swiss banks and in the U.S. equivalents at AT&T at, at and and at um, uh, Wells Fargo, we built their first online banking service. And so all over the place. And it became a huge P&L for, uh, for Netscape in addition to selling the browser. And, and so this went on for many, many years. And then things got harder after Microsoft started giving the browser away because obviously a big chunk of our revenue just literally disappeared uh, overnight. And... Um, but at the time, I was basically getting this incredible uh, lesson in building a startup, managing people, hiring like crazy, um, dealing with the bad times when a lot of like, like over half our revenue dried up over like a, a one year period. Um, and then dealing with, you know, splitting the business between the, 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 the online piece, because the, obviously the Netscape.com site was huge at the time. And then all of the software piece, which eventually split, right? Because the, the online piece went to AOL, and then we sold the commercial software part um, to, um, uh, to Sun, which then eventually became Oracle. So it was an incredible learning experience for me on so many levels. So what happened? So uh, you guys sell the online business to AOL. 
dot-com, but you guys IPO, then dot-com bubble kind of bursts. Is this around the time, like if we now fast forward to kind of early 2000s, is this when you started to dive deeper into the, you know, the emerging market space? And where, where did this passion come from? Yeah, that's a good talk question. About kind of like your interest in that space and what you're starting to work on there. Yeah, that came later. I was, um, I was really interested in mobile technology coming out of Netscape. I could see where this was going. And you think about Moore's Law, you like, okay, it's obvious that, that the cell phone, because we, we refer to them as cell phones, we're, we're going to merge with the PC at some point if you were paying attention to like this kind of exponential growth curve in Moore's Law. But it just wasn't clear how that was going to happen. This was, you know, 10 years before the iPhone. And in computing time, 10 years is an, is an eternity. Um, right? So, so I had not spent any, I spent a lot of time in a lot of rich countries, but I hadn't spent a lot of time in a lot of poor countries at that point. And as I got into the mobile phone technology, I was really interested in gaming because I thought that was going to be one of the first things that people were going to do with these things. And again, pre-iPhone, pre-Android, I ended up starting a company that built a, a mobile platform uh, for, for games, which were really popular uh, throughout uh, Europe and the U.S., particularly on, on um, uh, certain wireless carriers that had good um, handsets that supported these games. So I started this company called Scenario, which was a mobile wallet platform. And what was really interesting about Scenari was, was that while the early days of the platform were all about games, I became really interested in other applications of this wallet platform that we had created, particularly around banking and money transfer. And so I started doing a lot of work in other countries where uh, I thought this could be interesting. So I started visiting Mexico, I started doing a lot of research and remittances, you know, via Western Union. Um, I spent time with Western Union. I got to know the exec team there. Just really dug deep into, and I started visiting other remote countries where people either were largely unbanked or received remittances from the United States. So if you look, if you know anything about remittances, there's basically these corridors where migrant workers flow from to, meaning they go from Mexico to the U.S. or from the Philippines to the U.S. or from India to the Middle East to work in the oil fields. And the remittance flows go the other way, meaning they're sending money back home to support their families. And that's what I ended up um, uh, f really becoming interested in was how to facilitate banking of these people using this mobile technology. And that's what I, I, I really dug into the most uh, in my learnings and said, OK, you know, I was interested in what we were doing from a gaming perspective. It was OK. It was actually making a lot of money. Um, but I wasn't really a gamer. And so the idea that we had this mobile wallet that you could use to store cash and store gaming credits or gaming tokens, um, it was interesting to me, but it wasn't like, you know, going to change the world. Right now we ended up start, I ended up basically spinning this out and I started a new company that was going to use effectively this technology for money transfer and banking. And this was, and, this was boom financial. Yeah, that, yeah, okay. exactly. And, and so, but now we had the iPhone. And so as soon as the iPhone came out, I realized like, okay, it's game over now. And so I just basically said, we're going to focus hundred percent on smartphones. I, this is the future. I know it's going to be sl slow going for a while, but this is definitely the future. Anyway, the point is, is that we were committed to building this banking business now centered around the smartphone. And so I was spending a ton of time in, in Mexico, Central America, the Caribbean, the Philippines, just learning Africa, learning everything I could about how the banking system works there, how remittances work. I'd go to remote villages where people left to go work in the U.S. And there was no men in the villages because all the men would be like in California working the fields and the women were left behind in the villages tending to the kids. Right. And they would receive remittances from their husbands or, or fathers, uh, um, you know, uh, once a month or once a week or whatever, how often they got paid, usually once or twice a month. And, and I also learned that they did that because you didn't want to send the money more often because the fees were too high. So you would wait to as long as you could to send as a big a chunk of money because on a percentage basis, that would lower the cost. But I learned all these tricks about what it meant to be an unbanked cash consumer at the bottom of the income pyramid. Now, now people who receive remittances are not at the very bottom of the pyramid. They're not destitute because they're getting maybe $1,000 a month from family in another country, right? Which is more than people living on a dollar a day, obviously. Uh, but still, these are not rich people, right? And so you learn about what it means to live in a cash mindset where the cash is allocated. There is a little bit of savings, but it goes under a mattress and it's hidden. 
and and when you go to these villages, by the way, they're all doing the same thing, but they don't talk to each other about it because nobody really, I mean, how often do you talk to, to your, your friends about your finances? Not very often, right? Now you might say, oh, I, I'm buying Bitcoin or I'm, I'm buying GameStop, or you might brag about the fact that you made money on Doge, but by and large, you're not really talking about the innards of your finances. But I would go to these villages and convince people to talk to me about their finances. A gringo they never met and they have to talk to it through an interpreter. And, and, and so, and a lot of people were really scared by that. But once they realized like this was interesting, they would open up and, and say, yeah, you know, I, I wish this, I wish we could do it this way. I wish we could do it that way. Uh, I wish we had more economic opportunity. We're shut out of loans. I can't get a bank account. Um, I don't have an ID, you know, all, all these crazy stories. I had people crying in my arms about what it means to be unbanked and, and, you know, dealing with their families ba back in California. Um, all kinds of stories over many years. And so the biggest challenge, though, by far in all of this was regulation, by far the biggest challenge. I'm trying to build services through the, the phone that enable people to open up bank accounts, do small dollar money transfer across border. And I'm running into brick wall after brick wall after brick wall. Now I'm becoming an expert in money transfer regulation, local banking regulation. This is over many years, right? So now I'm getting the retail part of this that I, that I alluded to earlier. Like I'm getting all of it and, and like coming at me like a ton of bricks. So I'm spending time with, you know, FinCEN in the US, um, uh, which is treasury, uh, you know, representatives from OCC, from state MSBs, which regulate money transfer uh, businesses, regulators in the developing markets that were starting to think about e-money licenses, which didn't exist at the time, right? So the like the, the e-money license in Europe wasn't even a thing yet. And, and so spending a lot of time with these regulators, realizing that they just aren't equipped to deal with this part of the income pyramid. It's crazy. They just want everybody to have a bank account and be able to track everything. And it just doesn't, it just didn't, doesn't work. And, and so Western Union was built on the, uh, on the idea that they could take advantage of that system uh, to extract a ton of cash from this economy, right? Um, and, and, and for a lot of people, thank God they were there because they could facilitate these transactions that otherwise would just be insanely expensive, right? Western Union sounds expensive until you start doing bank wires as a poor consumer, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, I mean, it's, it's actually relatively cheap to remit money in cash from the U.S. to Mexico. Uh, Western Union is cheaper between the U.S. and Mexico than it is between California and New York uh, because there's more competition, right? <laughs> anyway, so I, I just became enamored with that world and saw a huge opportunity to help, but was giving up quickly because of the regulatory model. And, and at the same time, you know, I had read the Bitcoin white paper very early in, in, in the early days of, of boom, but was really committed to what I was doing and kind of came full circle back to it um, a couple of years later and into it. And, and I just was kind of all in at that point. I was mining, uh, you know, at home and even in the office. And you could do that in those days. And I was giving away a shit ton of Bitcoin uh, by today's dollars, probably, you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin just to people to, to, to get them in and teach them how to use it and show people what was going on. And but once I, I, I was getting more and more frustrated um, with the boom model, right, because of the regulatory issues. And I just said, look, I, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to basically go work on technology that I think can solve this problem. And I so think that your, like you like it, it, it's 20. I think you raised, I don't know, 15, 20 million bucks for boom back in like 2011 or 2012. I also saw you gave the first ever Bitcoin TED talk that same year in 2012. Um, like when, what what was it like basically getting enamored by Bitcoin, realizing that Bitcoin's going to change the world? Meanwhile, you have this company that's not built yep. on top of Bitcoin. How do you go back to your investors and say, look, I know we raised 17 million bucks, but I got to put that aside because I'm going to start right. building my life and career on Bitcoin. Well, luckily, I didn't have to. We had an investor that really wanted the company um, uh, and Digicel really wanted um wanted boom for their own internal kind of systems. So Digicel is a wireless carrier in like 35 countries, I believe. And they operate in a lot of countries that are remittance recipient countries and also largely unbanked. And they wanted to basically build a system to offer banking services via smartphone and debit card and then connect them all and be able to do money transfer with the United States. And they already had a big business in the U.S. 
with people buying airtime and sending it the airtime as effectively a gift card to uh, their family back home, like in Haiti and Central America, Guatemala, South Pacific. This was a big business for them. So they wanted to, uh, luckily for me, they wanted to extend that business into a full-fledged banking business. And so they ended up uh, buying Boom and integrating it into Digicel, and they run it now as part of Digicel. So it allowed me to start start Abra uh, and do exactly what I wanted to do, which was focus on on Bitcoin and later crypto. And I was enamored with the idea of, of self-sovereignty after all the crap I'd gone through. You know, I, I, I wasn't as eloquent. I couldn't have explained it as eloquently as I might be able to now. But intuitively, this idea of being your own bank, having self-sovereign access to your funds. Now, at the time, Bitcoin was worthless. So I didn't really think of it in terms of digital gold terms. No one did. Anybody who says they did is lying. Um, it was really about, you know, a cheap way to send money in a self-sovereign way, right? And no one was going to get rich on Bitcoin in those days. That changed later once we realized that, you know, the price was going to continue to go up, even if we were using it for ephemeral transactions at the time. And, and so... You know, I was just all in. I was like, this is going to change the world. This is how it's going to work. It's, it's basically everything I've been waiting for for 20 plus years in my career. It just brings it all together in something that I was super excited about. And the investors could see it in my eyes. I mean, I put a lot of the early money in to figure this out and then quickly went to some angel investors after that. And everybody was all in relatively quickly when they saw the power of what we were building. And, you know, the pitch was we want to basically allow people to have complete control over their money, be their own bank if they, when they want to, use our services when they want to. Um, they can send money person to person. They can, you know, eventually invest in, in crypto uh, and, you know, basically be a crypto bank. That was the pitch. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of early VCs that wanted in on Bitcoin but didn't know how, that was a pretty interesting pitch. And so now we were later than some of the other companies. Coinbase already existed. Um, some of the ex exchanges like Kraken already existed. And so we were, we were not in that early class of crypto companies. We were like, this was three years after that. Because remember, I was running Boom still so at the time. So this is like 2015 we're talking about here. 2016, 20, yeah, maybe early 2016. So, so how is, just for folks who don't know, just to zoom out a little bit, um, Abra, how, how are you different than something like a Coinbase, a Gemini, a BlockFi, oh, sure. or is it just another competitive product to those with maybe more of a focus in emerging markets? Can you just walk our listeners through? No, I mean, our 60, 65% of our revenue is in the US and Europe. So we're, well, we do a lot of business in like a long tail of, of like 100 countries, but we're, we're a retail crypto banking app and service. Our goal is not to be a better exchange. Um, you know, we're basically meant to give you the ability to buy, sell, hold cryptocurrencies, earn interest on cryptocurrencies, uh, borrow against crypto if you want to borrow cash. Uh, we, we run an institutional service that also allows people to earn high yield on uh, cash deposits as stable coins so you can earn 10% on your U.S. dollars. I manage all of my cash through Abra because I earn 10% on it, right? I manage all of my Bitcoin through Abra because I earn 4.5% on that and 5% on my Ethereum. And if I ever want to take some of my cash and buy like an altcoin with it, I can do it in the Abra app in seconds. And so it's not really meant for the pro trader. Abra is meant for the everyday consumer who wants to buy crypto, hold crypto, earn interest, uh, eventually borrow against the crypto as they're becoming crypto rich. Um, and you can send money person to person in the app as well if you want to do that. So, so it really becomes like the goal is to become your default bank for uh, for crypto. When you think about the future of Abra, you said 65% of the revenue comes from the States and Europe. Is the future in the States and Europe just because that's what's what you know? Yeah. Is it a, is it a very global company? Are you going to focus more on emerging markets? Where does this thing go? Yeah, new signups are, are definitely more outside the US now. Um, we're still getting great growth in the US, but we're also getting like way more users from outside the US coming in. So I suspect by the end of this year, I think that the growth outside the U.S. is going to continue for a while to outpace the U.S., and then eventually it'll flip. So I kind of group the U.S. and, and Europe together, uh, maybe Canada, and say, you know, that'll flip to be other countries uh, being majority of the revenue, certainly within, I would suspect, a year, if not sooner. Uh, and then 
hope I, I believe we've got a, a few more years of just this crazy growth where you know our business has been doubling every couple of months um, mm. right now. And so, um, how, yeah. How crazy? How crazy has this this kind of new boom? You know, Bitcoin's around. I don't know, fifty fifty five k today. Yeah. Ha, have the signups just been out of control? Yeah, I mean, January, February were nuts. Um, so far, Feb uh, March is looking good too. I mean, we're at, uh, yeah, Bitcoin's at about 54,000 as of this recording. And so, you know, I, I mean, it's just a crazy time. And um, yeah, the price is interesting. I'm happy to talk about it, but it's, it's this idea that I see more and more people every day waking up to what's going on. Right. That crypto, you know, everything that I talked about that got me excited earlier, the public is catching up. You know, it's it's self-sovereignty. It's agency over your over your finances. It's governments run amok, you know, being late in this debt cycle now, um, watching the government basically print another 20 percent of the money supply in one year. One year. It took 25 years to get there before the one year. And, and so. You know, people are waking up to this idea that, that a digital gold that is internet based, the internet of money, the time is right for that. And, you know, it's very gratifying to see it happening in real time. How many people are at Abra now? Uh, we're still pretty small. We're under 100, but we're, we're growing fast. We're trying to hire as fast as we can. <laughs> yeah, we probably need uh, to be 200. <laughs> Yeah. I, I don't want to dive too deep into regulation now, but you did mention it a few times before. And so I went to buy Bitcoin uh, using Abra. I've mm -hmm. heard amazing things from dozens of people who use Abra and they love it. Um, I went to buy Bitcoin. I live in New York. I couldn't do it. What's, yep. what's going on with regulation? What's the holdup here? Yeah, you live in the one state that we don't provide service to in the United States. How frustrating it's really is that? <laughs> If you live in New York, it's incredibly frustrating. And I have all my families in New York, so they can't use the product either. It's just, it's, just, it's incredibly annoying. Um, New York has this uh, law uh, and license requirement referred to as the bit license, which is this onerous piece of crap legislation that um, requires companies to get this license. We'll get it eventually because we have no choice. We want to have happy customers in New York. But it's just it's just over the top onerous and it's just not fair to the consumers in New York. I mean, I know people who want to work in crypto who've literally moved out of the state of New York because of this license. And, you know, other states have license requirements for managing crypto. But they're not onerous. You know, um, there's a reason why Kraken, for example, doesn't support New Yorkers and uh, other crypto companies have punted on New York like Shapeshift or whatever. And so. You know, Abra is not the only company that's done this. The vast majority of companies have chosen not to support the bit license uh, at this point. Anyway, um, we'll get it eventually, but it's incredibly frustrating. Hmm. Most most regulators or most geographies have taken a, a reasonable tact to regulation, uh, I have to say. So I'm pretty comfortable with what we have to manage at Abra from a regulatory perspective. It's a moving target for sure, but that's the business we've chosen. So. I don't mind dealing with that. That's our job. But but when it becomes too onerous versus the cost of servicing a customer and, and, and having a sustainable business, then we have to rethink things. And that's where New York is at right now. What's the you, you've worked at some incredibly challenging places throughout your career, NASA, CIA, Netscape, building the new, you know, the new Internet, Quant at Goldman. Is this the most challenging thing that you've ever done? It is by far the most challenging thing I've ever done because we're scaling so fast. Um, the technology is complex. We have to make it really super simple for the consumer. So we have the product complexity. We have the regulatory complexity. We have the complexity of scaling a business. Uh, as CIO, I have, uh, CEO, I have to basically you know, deal with fundraising and, and scaling there. I mean, we're profitable now, which is great, but that wasn't always the case. you know. And, and so just just it sounds like, oh, it's paradise because these guys are profitable, growing fast. And, you know, right now it's 15, 16 hour days and I love it. I love what I do, uh, but it's hard. Yeah. I, um, we're coming up on time here, Bill. So I, I want to, um, I always wrap up with a few of the same questions and then okay. you can ask me, you can ask me one question to finish this okay. off. But, um, and I, I will say, I'm going to have to have you back as, uh, for, as, as another guest, um, for another, for another episode, because I think this is amazing. And I think we could have, uh, there's there's so much more that we could have discussed, but my one question here is, um, what is the most challenging decision that you're thinking through right now that you think you'll have to make 
at some point in the short to near term that, that you're just grappling with? Um, well, right now I'm in scaling mode. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about the best way to scale Abra to, to reach as many consumers and, and, and businesses as possible. We have a growing institutional business and a growing consumer business. And so, so that's really the biggest challenge for me right now is managing that growth and um, doing the right thing by our employees and by our customers at the same time. It's, it's a challenge, right? And so, and doing that during COVID has meant that everybody's remote. I mean, all, any, new any new employee we've hired, and we've hired a bunch over the past year, has never met any of the other employees in person, none. Now, I, I have met a couple, uh, you know, socially distanced when I go to New York or see my family, whatever. But, but by and large, most, almost no one else has. And that's a huge challenge, especially now that we're hiring even more people, right? And, and, and we're still on, uh, we're, we're pretty much permanently remote, but with the option to, we have an office, uh, like, for, for example, in Mountain View, we have an office in Manila, and, you know, we're opening offices in other cities. But, but people, that, that will be for people's use when they need it with the understanding that they're perfectly fine to work from home. And we have a lot of people who don't want to work from home, by the way, but had no choice. You know, a lot of people with small kids, for example, it's tough, you know, if, if you've got like, or an infant, right, with, with, with one parent who would work and one that would take care of the infant and it's, it's loud and, you know, everybody knows this now because everybody's gone through it with COVID. At the beginning, it wasn't completely obvious how this was going to go. And, and I guess to all of us in hindsight, it's completely obvious because we lived through it for a year. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Some people can deal with it. Uh, some people are desperate to get back in an office and there's a range of people in between, you know? And, and so anyway, so this, this is the big challenge right now is, is just the scaling function and how to turn the company into where, you know, where it is now into the next level of, you know, multi-billion dollar operation. Hmm. Is Avra a billion dollar company already? Uh, not in terms of, of revenue, not yet. You see it. I'm, I'm assuming you see it going there soon. I hope so. I mean, yeah. it's, it's really on the path. So, yeah. Um, what's your, what's your biggest life hack for getting this done? <laughs> uh, lose sleep. <laughs> How much no, sleep do you get? <laughs> not much. Um, so I sleep more on the weekends, but uh, I worked on this NFT auction over the weekend where we financed this auction. And so uh, some stuff I was supposed to do personally ended up not doing Saturday night. I was working, you know, with some people who wanted to bid on this Kings of Leon auction, but didn't even know Ethereum. And they're like, how do I buy Ethereum on the weekend again? Well, the bank's closed. And so <laughs> we ended up financing the token purchases using our lending system. Wow. And they were at the auction. I mean, this was a six figure, these were six figure bids. So it was a big deal. Anyway, the point is, is I, th I think um, I do work out a lot. Uh, I try to I try to stay fit. I walk a lot. I'm standing right now. I have a standing desk. That's why I wobble a little bit, you know, which is probably annoying on podcasts, but but it keeps me sane. So I actually stand at least 12 hours a day, probably more. Um, and and that's that not including the long walks and the workouts. I do CrossFit and stuff like that. And um, you know, I try to be there for my my kids are older now, so so it's 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 you know they're more they're more adults, but but I I still try to be there for them as much as I can, and that's a life hack for me, you know. Um, social life has waned the last few months uh, because of between Abra growth and COVID and, and other things. So, uh, but I, I'm looking. That's one. That's probably what I'm looking forward to the most. The next uh, few months uh, is obviously I'm really grateful for where Abra's at, but also just getting back to being with friends more often and. Uh, traveling, which I miss a lot. I mean, I travel a lot for Abra and I haven't done that really for the most part for a year now. And um, I'm really excited to get back to that kind of life hack for me, which keeps me sane, being with friends and, and traveling a lot. Nice. What, um, what founder or uh, other company within crypto do you learn from or do you find yourself admiring? Uh, well, you mentioned Mike Belshi, BitGo. Mike and I have known each other for a very long time, uh, pre-crypto. Pre Mike's great. Um, yeah, there's a lot of smart people doing really good things in crypto. Um, you mentioned BlockFi, Zach's a great guy. Um, you know, I think what Jesse's done at, at Kraken is great, you know, and, and, and these are all different people. Like a lot of these people are not public facing. They don't want to be like, you don't see Jesse out there very often. I respect that. You know, I'm also more of a retail, pure retail company and I have to be out there. Uh, it's not my, it doesn't come naturally, but I don't mind doing it. Um, but there's really a lot of smart, now successful people. The team at uh, Bitso in, in, in Mexico is awesome. You know, Daniel's awesome. 
Um, and, and so, and these are all my friends, you know, luckily a lot of us who were early, um, you know, early days of crypto, uh, we would get together, uh, Vinny Lingham is a good friend of mine. We, we, we talk all, all the time, uh, civic, um, and these are, these are people who've made big bets, you know, Barry, we talk to regularly, Barry Silbert, Grayscale, um, you know, we, we were small parties of people, uh, people who, uh, most people thought were crazy and, and now, I just mentioned a few people who are names who are billionaires. And so, you know, that, that's, that's not why they're my friends, but I'm really happy for them. And, and, you know, they made bets when other people thought they were crazy. And so, you know, I really respect that. Uh, we can wrap this up with one question uh, for me, if you want to, uh, if you want to take it, or we can, we can wrap it before the question. Sure. Um, I'm curious, like what, what is driving your interest in my world? And, you know, where do you see this going and how it relates to what you're doing? My interest in your world is the same interest I have in a lot of founders worlds. Um, there are price movement drives price adoption, right? Or drives adoption, right? So as the price goes from 20K to 50K, 50K to 100K, 100K to 250K, that drives hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions of new people coming into, into this space. I think my the whole reason we're doing this show is to kind of unveil some of the stories behind a lot of these companies. I, mm -hmm. you know, run a media company, Blockworks. We're always reporting on news and announcements and funding and product launches. But what I'm really curious about is the stories behind the companies, which often leads back to the founder. And so yeah, I, I mean, we're just, you know, Empire, the whole goal of Empire is to just uncover the stories behind the founders so that as these 10 million people, 100 million people who come into the space, you know, I don't want them to just, I don't want the, the you know, the stories from 2009 to 2020 get left behind. So that's what yep. we're doing to uncover those. Yeah, that's great. I love it. I yeah. keep doing it. Appreciate yeah. it. Well, Bill, I'm rooting for you. Um, where can people find more about you? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, uh, Bill Barheit. I, I try to, you know, be on there every every you know few times a week, uh, pretty regular, pretty regularly on Twitter. Abra.com uh, is uh, you know where you can download Abra, but um, and then there's Abra Global on Twitter as well. But we're pretty findable. You know, you'll find me online if you if you're searching. So amazing. Well, yeah. folks, I'd really recommend you go check out Abra. Um, you can do pretty much everything you've ever wanted to do with your crypto. Um, so, Bill, thanks so much for coming on. I'm uh, looking forward to the uh, next time you come on the show already. So, thanks for having me, Jason. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed the episode, reach out to me at Jason Yenowitz on Twitter. Punch Apple or Spotify's review, five stars if you enjoyed it. Head over to YouTube, check us out there. If you haven't subscribed to our newsletter, we're at blockworks.co, blockworks.co forward slash newsletter. Uh, and yeah, again, hope you enjoyed the episode. See you next week. That was one of those episodes where I was uh, a little upset with myself for only scheduling it for 90 minutes. So we will be sure to have Bill back. Let me know what you thought of the episode. Email me, uh, email Bill, email both of us um, on, on one email. Let us know what you thought of the episode. Message me on Twitter, message me on LinkedIn, shoot me an email. Let me know what you think of the podcast in general. Let me know who you think I should have on. If you haven't subscribed yet, do so now. If you haven't subscribed to our daily newsletter, do so now. I'm Jason Yanowitz, and thanks again for listening to another episode of Empire.